When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From the Heads of Podcast Network, welcome to Mother Folklore, a podcast about words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. I am Derek O'Shea. And I'm Geraldine McAvoy. As some of you may know, if you've been following us online, on the internet, on the social media, on the Bebo, on the MySpace. And all, Bebo? All, <laughs> oh, don't. No. <laughs> Bad time. And all those places on Friendster. And Friendster. MSN Messenger. Was MSN, that a thing? Oh, yeah. yeah. The, 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 the Messenger as well. If, you, if you've been following these various channels, you may have heard that, yes, Mother Folklore will be finishing up soon. The podcast project uh, is coming to its natural end. Um, we, even though it's been a podcast of very large personalities of very strong opinions, it's not, we're not breaking up like a band. We are actually all just in, at points in our lives. This 2021 has been, has brought us all to a point where we are all embarking on very exciting new projects and something's got to give. And sadly, it has been this podcast, but for four years, yeah, decades in podcast years, you know, I mean, it feels like I can't remember a time when I didn't do this. You know? mm-hmm. I also love that you keep saying that we're still friends. Like it's like when they, a band breaks up mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, it was an amicable de- decision. And then they all unfollow each other on social media. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And I remember it's um, it used to be that when I were that the sugar babies were being interviewed and they'd never get the three of them all at the same time. The other one was like, which oh. three? I mean, <laughs> which three? <laughs> Because <laughs> there, there was a section in a in a government department or a place I used to work, there was a section that was referred to as the sugar babes because it had such a high staff turnover of just people like either <laughs> asking to, asking to leave or asking to be transferred, and and then it, it just it became just entirely popular. Anyone who was anyone who was sent there was being sent there on on their first day on the job. They didn't realize where they were going. Yeah. But You're now the new Mutia. You've taken over from Siobhan. Exactly. <laughs> it was. It's. It was just. It's. I guess on one level, obviously, the Sugar Waves were a brilliant band with brilliant songs. What I found out, this is, and you, you know, you like Eurovision, like me. Yes. And, Eurovision. you know, I, I was looking at it there recently. I was doing some research on the Eurovision and particularly Ireland's, you know, what changed since Ireland was, you know, riding high. Ireland's imperial period was arguably, if you were going to ever, you know, be do as well in the Eurovision as we did, the years in which we did well were the absolute worst because there were the times when there was no ad breaks and you couldn't make any money off it. And the production oh. costs were very high and it was all jury voting. And it was also the, the 90s was when there, the... Sorry, Euro- it was all jury voting? I don't remember the hate. It was, it was so all people ju- didn't ring. It, it, it was all jury voting in the old days. And, and that's the thing. So that's that's when you had the very kind of political voting. And, and yeah. since actual text voting and stuff came in you actually find that it's there are, there's never a, there's never a kind of an odd decision there's always a clear winner and yeah. it's, it's it's very decisive whereas you had some very um you had the big situation i think it was in in 94 95 you had um gina g who had a hit across europe but who did very badly in, in the jury votes yeah. and yeah. one of her backup dancers went on to become 
um, the, the part of the singer-songwriter team behind Girls Aloud and the Sugar Babes. No. A, an organization called Xenomania, Xenomania, which were, it was modeled on the Max Martin songwriting machine. Yeah, yeah. And they based themselves in a house that was owned by, go about maybe uh, several decades before, the woman who Alice in Wonderland was based on. There's a link between Alice in Wonderland what? and the Sugar Babes. And girls are not, not to, to pardon the pun, but what rabbit hole did you go down with this? <laughs> <laughs> I was, That's fascinating. I was trying to basically explain how the reason, like Mainskin, did so one of the things Mainskin yeah. did, did very well is they're a huge, they're actually a very big band in Italy. And similarly, yeah, they're really big. Yeah, they won, um, or no, they came second on is it the Italian Voice or something. Yeah, and they came, that's the, came second to the Italian Voice. You had, um, the the recent Israeli winner was also a, a pop star within it and Israel, I think, and similarly the yeah. in, the most recent Dutch winner. And the big thing is, while we think that the English language has been a a, a boon for Irish pop music internationally, it hasn't been a boon for the Irish pop industry because mm. talent just goes to other English speaking countries. Whereas yeah. countries that have a different first spoken language have to cater for a, a, a domestic pop market in some ways. So you actually have a an internal pop machine of radio stations, songwriters, bands and yeah, stuff. That's true. Yeah. All, all move in the same direction. And Ireland doesn't have that anymore. Whereas, and the country that absolutely does have that is Sweden. And that's why yeah, they're they going to, yeah. that's where they're going to take over. They're going to pass us out eventually. It's it's only a matter of time. It'll be so humiliating. It'll be so humiliating when, when the, the one thing we're best in the world at is taken away it's from us. taken from us by the Swedes. By hot Swedes. It's just hot unfair. Swedes. Hot, like, genetically grown they're so hot they can only have been made in a lab coming out with a synth like just ready to, to make pop music to make us all enjoy like oh, um, it's great music though like Stockholm is more of the world's top 50 restaurants in the entire UK and they have the pop music situation turned down they've got kind of and and they've got it's I mean what, when, is it, when, when are you going to say enough is enough yeah. And what you, are, what else do you want? You've got a beautiful city. You've got the ABBA Museum. You've got a lovely theme park. Stockholm is a beautiful city. Would recommend. What more mm-hmm. do you want? What more can you take from us? Hot people. In <laughs> extremely, extremely efficient public transport. What must you take from us? What, what We have one thing. I think <laughs> you take that from us. My mother said that one of the reasons that, that, that Sweden is so well organized is because their capital city is the cork of their country. <laughs> The cork, what? Do you, oh, cork, as in cork. Sorry, yeah. I mean like cork, top cork. wine bottle. Cork, yeah, yeah. because it's ge- geographically where it is on the actual shape yeah. of the country. So that's. that's I my used to theory. fun fun Sweden Stockholm fact. I used to work on the ferries that went from Turku, where I lived, to Stockholm every day. It would clean on the ferries, and it was a because halfway through the ferry, um, alcohol is duty free. And alcohol is very expensive in Nordic countries because it's there's a state monopoly on it. You have systems, logit, I think it's a, it is in Sweden, and then alco in Finland. So you have to buy like halfway through the cruise, the ten hours from Turku to Stockholm, they have like cheap alcohol, and everybody goes nuts and buys it. Um, and then Muggins, me, had to clean up after that when they arrived in in the morning ships and in the evening ships. And let me tell you, that was an experience <laughs> because they're there for the ships are there for an hour and a half. We have probably 40 minutes to clean 600 cabins. Mm. It was nightmarish. <laughs> I'd say so. I, I wouldn't be entirely confident those cabins were cleaned to the point well, where... Well, they're small. <laughs> like, how dare you? Because we uh, we very often have, were sent back to clean again. But mm. you ha- they, they showed us how to do it. Like, I can make a bed in 60 seconds on those. Uh, oh. You had to make a bed in 60 seconds. Mm. That was the rule. The nicer beds, the nicer cabins, those took a little bit longer. But uh, the, the cheap cabins, the, the, below, the below deck cabins... 
They're they're cheap and cheerful mm. and they're clean. I can promise you that. They're clean. And the state they might have been in, they'd want to be clean after. God, yeah, I'd say so. God, God, yeah. God knows what goes on those ferries in a ferry me. cabin. God and me. That's who knows. <laughs> <laughs> Horrible thought. You poor crater. I know. Poor crater. Yeah. <laughs> That's a nice segue. <laughs> Do you think our listeners will miss this where we were like, oh, yeah, they're here to talk about Grodin's research and they're just going to talk about pop music in Sweden and like cleaning ferries. drunk people on a cabin. Yeah. Look, yeah, this is this is this is 21st century dynamicus like topics. Topics yeah. are colonial. Yeah. You if no. you colonize a colonize a conversation with a topic, you know, you were just, you know, exactly. rubbing out the actual natural way. This is how information moves and it's set free. Yeah. You're welcome, guys. Yeah, <laughs> we've provided you a very valuable service. How have people stuck with us? <laughs> Somehow they have, and we're very grateful. Structured podcast, <laughs> I don't know her. <laughs> we're very grateful for them all, but the fact is, you know, yeah, I think what's structure ever done for you? You, know, you can get structure on commercial radio, you yeah, know? exactly, exactly. Yeah. You, you get structure when you pay your TV license, you know? Not paying no TV license here. Thank you to our patrons. Do contribute. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. And, and th- thank you to the patrons for making the, the, this this last series possible. Yeah. But anyway, crater. I didn't use those word innocently. I was, of course, segueing back to the fact that, Gargin, you are in the exciting process of, of in those few days, weeks, seconds, hours before you become Dr. McAvoy. Well, fingers crossed. Let's not jinx it. But yeah, I am. I have my PhD submitted. So um, it's somewhat it's out of sight, at least somewhat still in mind. But um, yeah, so it's been like you were saying this this last four years. I started my PhD in 2016. So I started the year before um, we, we started Mother Folklore. But it's kind of been the progression has been very much for me when I think about my PhD. And the journey, it's like inherently intertwined with with Mother Folklore. And I don't just mean that because it was something else I did at the same time. But actually, it's been such a learning curve as well for me. And such like some of the things that we've done on the podcast and we've discussed in the podcast have come from my research or become part of my research because they had such an impact on me. Um, and, you know, we had we had Sinead Burke on and her perspective has been so, so helpful and so transformative for me, we had uh, uh, Megan Figueroa from uh, Dr. Megan Figueroa from the the Vocal Fries on. Their podcast has been, you know, fantastic. Um, we had Ola on talking about, um, you know, identity, and and that's been a huge part. Um, and uh, we had Owen on recently talking about uh, minker uh, identity and stuff, and that has been hugely impactful for me. So it's been kind of like. <laughs> Well, I know that other people are listening to this. For me, it's been great. Like it's been like <laughs> it's been really useful for work basis. So it's been it's been a really wild kind of journey to have had this on at the same time and to have it's very hard for me to separate in my head the two one from the other because they've been so inherently intertwined because my research is so based around uh, language rights and language issues and minority language rights. Um, if you couldn't tell by how riled up I get <laughs> over the last four years, this is why. <laughs> So it's been, yeah, it's been wild to kind of have the two things together and sort of coming to a close around the same time. Mm. And obviously this is part of the reason why, you know, we're all moving on to different things. And that chapter of my life is hopefully closing post-Viva. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's been it's been wild. Tell some of our listeners who aren't, who haven't entered the post-grad sausage machine what a Viva is. Yeah, so Aviva is like your, fi- it's a Viva, uh, Viva Voce, um, so it's like a, a, it's a Latin term and it's essentially you're defending your, your PhD. They do it differently in different countries. I know in America and here in Finland, they do it like it's public. So it's like, 
all your mates come along and watch you um, and it's a big amphitheatre or whatever. Um, that doesn't happen in Ireland and it definitely doesn't happen now. It's going to be a, a Zoom thing. But it's yourself um, and two examiners. Uh, generally speaking, it's two examiners for me. Um, and they just read my PhD and they, they I, I don't want to say quiz me on it, but like they talk to me about it and we we talk through like issues maybe or, you know, the, the research and stuff. And then at the end of it, you get your results or whatever. So yeah, I'm a little nervous talking about that aspect of it, but it's actually something I'm kind of looking forward to because, you know, look, my PhD is like between 80,000 words and 100,000 words. It's pretty long. I don't expect people to read it. Um, And especially an expert in my field. So it's very exciting to have people who are experts who I admire who are going to like look at it and read it. And that's really cool. Um, So I'm really excited about that aspect of it. Um, because they're people who, you know, I don't have to f- fundamentally explain this is why language rights are important because they're already on the ball with it. So that's going to be kind of exciting. Um, so I am trying to look forward to it. It's obviously nerve wracking as well because it's the culmination of, well, at, at least five years now, five years of work. And I did my master's on this subject as well. So I've been doing this for a long, long time. My undergrad was also kind of based on this. So like 10, 11 years I've been looking at, at language rights. Um and so it's kind of the culmination of that. So it's a little bit nerve wracking. Yeah. Why do people need language rights guarding if they have English? <sighs> I know you're just saying that for the question. <laughs> but still, I'm just going to have to take a sip for that one. Um, but I mean, listen, why do people need any rights? Mm-hmm. If that, that, that's that question. But I think I think I would, would have maybe started out my PhD very defensive about this. But I think having done it, and I, if this, listen, if this podcast has taught you anything, it's not about... I read some tweet actually yesterday um, and it was about that. I think it was in relation to Welsh. You know, why do people speak Welsh when they can already speak English? Like we talked about Sweden at the start of this podcast. 80% of Sweden can speak English. But that doesn't mean they speak English. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like people can speak English in Finland, but they don't, they speak Finnish, right? Or they speak Swedish. It's not about, like that, that, that perspective is, and I get why it is, but that perspective is so hegemonic with English. It just positions English as superior. And I get why that is, because it is the, the dominant language, at least in the Western world. You know, it's what the language we consume all our media in. So why wouldn't you? But I think it's such a, the the converse of that is why wouldn't you have other languages? Because you learn so much. I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast multiple times that like the way that different concepts are structured in different languages require you to think in a different way. And I know I've used the example of aunts and uncles in Swedish. Mm. Um, I'm currently planning a wedding with a Swedish speaking Finn and my aunts and uncles are both the people who are my dad's brothers and their wives. Mm. But his aunts and uncles are just the people who are the brothers or sisters of his mom and dad. So because it's different in Swedish, the person who's married to your aunt and uncle aunt is not your uncle because your aunt is your uh, mom's sister or mom, uh, dad's sister. You know, that's how that that phrase is constructed. Mm. So it causes you to think differently. So I think, why would you be monolingual is a better word. And language rights are there to protect people, marginalised people in particular, because it's always the marginalised people, um, from being discriminated against on the basis of their language. And that's that's the core of my research. It's been looking at how people experience the criminal justice system as accused persons. So people who are quote unquote criminals, and I would you know, I would, I would struggle with that terminology for describing people, but people who are criminalised, who are already in a very vulnerable position, 
whether or not you think they deserve it, I would say not. But I think people who are at the hands of the state, when they can be imprisoned, fined, uh, you know, detained, uh, have their reputation ruined or, you know, whatever else that comes with with criminalising a person and how their language can actually have an inherent impact on their journey, shall we say, through the criminal justice system and how it can shape entirely how they are perceived and therefore treated and then have knock-on effects in the future. And so the language rights that I'm interested in are those language rights and how we can protect people and make sure that we're considering, hang on, am I treating this person fairly or am I stereotyping them because I have all of these perceptions about who they are because of the language they're using? And obviously, I, we've mentioned it before, my, my focus was on Irish speakers and ISL users, deaf people in Ireland. Um, but it has an application, a broader application, you know, uh, as I said, the Swedish speaking Finns here in Finland or Sami speakers or uh, Spanish speakers in the United States. You know, there's find a country and you'll find a minority language. And this, yes, it's it's fairly universal. And well, you mentioned criminal criminal rights there, uh, or, or particularly in the inter- interacting with the criminal justice system. An issue is with I'm thinking of with disability here in this case, and with and with with regard to Irish language, we often don't. Sometimes people with additional needs or disabilities are are infantilized in such a way that we can't imagine them being yeah. in a situation where they be accused of a crime. Yeah, and I think that's. Because a lot of um, that's, you know, that's the term creator that has come up in, in my research. Um, well, I have I have brought it up. It hasn't come up. I brought it up. <laughs> um, but you have this a lot. And it's funny in a sense that a lot of research about deaf people in particular, um, not all research, but there is quite a bit of research that will look at deaf people or disabled people as victims of crime, which is obviously a huge problem in itself. That is a massive problem. And how they're treated as victims of crime and how they are victimised and how they can experience being victims of crime. But I'm interested in the other side of it, which sort of books the trend very much on what people would quote unquote expect of a quote unquote disabled person, whether or not they apply that identity themselves or not. Um, So I know Caroline said in our podcast that, you know, she doesn't identify as as disabled, but she knows that the disability label can be useful. Um. And when you're talking about crime, that sort of can buck the trend that like people are like, hang on, you're a disabled person. You don't do crime because you're I'm going to infantilize you and paternalize you. And then you have this weird instance where if we're talking about because, you know, there we can talk about what you what your perceptions on crime and criminalizing and and and, and policing. But there is a, a public good in crime prevention and people being in some way, not necessarily punished, but apprehended for the crime they have done or for the wrongdoing they have done. Mm. So if you're saying, ah, let them away with it because they're so-and-so. I mean, sure, maybe in the circumstances it's the right thing to do. But then also, like, are you doing right by by society also? If that person is going around, I don't know, knocking over stop signs, like that's not great for the rest of society <laughs> for you to be like, ah, sure, it's grand. You know, I'm not saying that that, that hasn't actually, you know, that's not, that's just a made up example. But like we have to find a balance by we have to be able to view people as individuals and view them in terms of their, in terms of who they are and in terms of, of what's right for them. Um, and obviously that also includes not everybody has the capacity to be to be at the helm of the criminal justice system. And we need to be understanding of that as well. But we ca- we shouldn't just assume that because a person is deaf or because a person has a disability that they're automatically not able because that's so infantilizing. And like, 
shitty behaviour. Like, mm. that's just a shitty thing to do to somebody. It might be grand if they get away with not being fined. They might be delighted that you thought that they shouldn't be able to, you know, I'm sure that happens all the time. You see it happening with um, with women who get stopped by, by guards, generally speaking, across the board. Like, white women would generally probably have a better time of it if it's, get, it's getting stopped by the guards than a man. But... Mm. Does that mean it's right? Probably not. But I'm still delighted I didn't get penalty points. Do you know? This is, yeah, this is the, I suppose <laughs> the, yeah, these perceptions that you know certain uh, certain crimes aren't seen as serious when they're when they're performed by or when the person perpetrating them doesn't seem like a threat, and that's obviously a big thing with middle class yeah. drug use. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, middle tra- class drug use is mm. because yeah, the idea <laughs> is well, you know, um, yeah, this this person isn't going to you know stab anyone yeah. before because if they're just you know a um, if someone's a, or a repeat art student who enjoys a, a joint, maybe that they're not an, a, a, yeah. a danger to society, even though the you know the exact same consumption might be seen as a terrible threat. And yeah, but it is. It's funny that way, and that's that's. I mean, my my perception of the criminal justice system has so changed since I started my PhD because it is all about perception. We have, you know, at every step in the criminal justice system, there's there's humans. Mm. And those humans have biases and those biases can be increased by by things like like being part of uh, a police service. Um, you know, there's oodles of research on that. Um, and so the way a person is perceived is so, so important to how they're they're treated in the criminal justice system. And why I think that the, the most one of the most interesting parts of my research I found is that you can't generally see Irish speaking or ISL use on the get-go, right? You can't see that and know that that's coming. I mean, I don't know, unless the person is decked to head to toe in fáinneas and has a sign that says mm. I don't know how you expect somebody or there it's just Peg walking around the streets of Dublin, mm-hmm. you know, maybe. And she's holding the pick, the, the book next to you so you know there's While no she's doubt. robbing a bank. Yeah, maybe then you might expect. But I think for a lot of things you might not quote unquote, expect to see what you perceive to be an Irish speaker or a deaf person. So when they're apprehended, you have this weird sort of instance where police might be trying to put them in a box and then they, they're like, oh, no, I need to go in the other box. So you're not perceiving, you're not expecting to meet an Irish speaker on O'Connell Street, but you do. Mm. And we've talked about this before. There's a constitutional right to have to use Irish, but that catching of a police officer of a, a member of Angarda Shiokan on the hop can be really dangerous, actually. And it can, you know, they maybe perceive it as troublemaking. And that's where this this term Schlieveen has come into it. So I've kind of categorised very broadly experiences with people who I interviewed where they were treated as either a Schlieveen or a Krator. And for those of you not fluent in Irish or Anglo or Hiberno-English and don't know what a Schlieveen or a Krator is, because they exist in both, mm-hmm. um, a sleeveen or a sleeveen is like a sneaky kind of snake person, um, an undesirable kind of troublemaker. Um, and that's very often how people were perceived by by the police, but also by judges and other members of the criminal justice system. Their Irish usage or their ISL usage was deemed troublemaking and uh, deemed deviant. And they were like, I'm going to punish you now because you are making a mess. You're, you're just trying to be, you know, mm troublesome and trying to cause problems. The next thing you know, they'll be asking for a lawyer. The next thing you know, they'll be asking for an interpreter. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Um, Don't get me on to asking for lawyers in in police station interviews. That's a whole other Mm -hmm. thing. Um, But uh, uh, Line of Duty has lied to us. No. Uh, No, what's that one? Dublin Murders. Dublin Murders. (laughs) Um, uh, 
but and then the other side of that is a, a creator which is immediately perceiving somebody where this only happened with um with deaf people where they were seen to be oh god love them oh god love them they're a poor creator so a creator is like a wretch or a lamb or like somebody who's like an unfortunate soul i often use that when i'm doing a a a conference about this I often use that screen grab from The Little Mermaid where Ursula is singing Poor Unfortunate mm-hmm. Souls because it's very helpful <laughs> and then she's got those snake buddies who work very well as schlevines if you're trying to create a visual <laughs> um, so there you go if you've ever been to one of my um, conference papers that's something you can expect um, but uh they will be seen sort of as like they can't handle it and like sometimes that works out fair but then other times not so much. And then you might have an instance where a person who is deaf is just sort of left not being in any communication with, with the police and they're not given a piece of paper or they're not, uh, there's no interpreter called because as we talked with, with Caroline, people don't see it as a linguistic issue. They'll see it as a disability issue. So their mind doesn't automatically jump to interpreters. Um, and interesting enough, uh, Dr. Mary Phelan, who works in DCU, she has a book on Irish usage in the courts um, up until 1921, I think, um, but it starts out much earlier than that. And you can actually see Irish speakers being perceived in this creator way, way back when, when they were just assumed that, oh, they're Irish speakers, they're big Egypts from the Mm. country who don't know anything. So that was how, so even though our perceptions of Irish have have progressed and it's almost exclusively now the Schlieveen that I found, um, you can still see from old research that they were very much sort of perceived in this creator way uh, when British rule still existed and when English was deemed to be like the, the language of you know scholars or whatever. And Irish was very much a sort of country, Egypt language mm-hmm. um, where people couldn't, didn't have capacity to stand yeah. trial. My name is Stephanie Preisner and my podcast is called Basically. And basically it makes complex things basic. Are you confused by health insurance? Are you confused by getting a mortgage? Are you confused about how to sort out your personal finances? Any of the things that confuse you, I can make basic for you. We've had guests like Luke O'Neill, Harry Barry, Mary Lou MacDonald, Roz Purcell, and on Taoiseach, Micheál Martin. It's hard for me to promote the podcast because it really is what you want me to explain. So tune in and I hope you like it. When I was researching the kind of um, the earliest instances of the word crack, um, you know, to, to settle yeah. the great crack versus CRAIC versus CRACK debate. Um, yeah. Newspapers were a lot more formal in the old days. You know, you didn't have, um, mm. you certainly didn't have film reviews in the culture section. And <laughs> the big thing was, yes, either the first instances of crack in that context or good crack or great crack were in newspaper um, court courtroom reports where, you know, other Irish vernacular terms we put in inverted commas reported by yeah. a journalist who didn't speak Irish. Uh, reporting on a court case with me with an Irish defendant, Irish speaking defendant. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it 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 was kind of yeah, like old timey court reports are great. Mm. Like the, there was nothing happening in the olden times except courts, <laughs> it seems. But they're actually a very useful source of information. But yeah, you do see that that, and I find it so interesting to see the progression. How like a hundred years ago, Irish was perceived in this sort of like. Egypt language, which I still think in a sense might exist a little bit. But now there is also the elite. We've talked about it a million times. The perception of elitism and troublemaking that I saw because nobody speaks Irish. So why would you speak in Irish? Obviously to cause problems, do you know? And then that that trans, transpired then because there was such a volume of people who were perceived as the Shlevin, I was able to actually break that up further 
with specifics to the Irish speakers who I interviewed and they were perceived, there was like three identities, well, two tropes and an identity I like to talk about. And the two tropes were the good goyle and the bad goyle, which I have talked about um, uh, previously. The good goyle is the goyle who switches immediately to Irish or to English, I beg your pardon. They might have an Irish name, but they'll give you their name in English. They, you know, conduct all their business in English like the good little goyle. And they don't cause any problems. Whereas the bad goyle is just gung-ho trying to use Irish all the time just to show you up that you don't have Irish or this service isn't available in Irish. And there's malice in what they're doing. And then the the entire opposite of both of those things was what I call the true goyle, which is the actual identity that people have. This was never a choice mm-hmm. for people. It was... And I, I, I don't know if... <laughs> I remember saying this to my supervisors one time. I, obviously, our listeners know I was involved in the repeal the eighth campaign, and I'm just so allergic to the term choice. That oh, yes. Maybe that's why I hated when people talked about about oh, it's the choice of whether English to Irish or to use. And it was actually nobody I talked to made that choice. It wasn't a choice. It wasn't a flippant decision. This is how they live their lives, and they've been told I'm allowed to inter- to interact with the state. I'm allowed to interact with Angarda Siakana. Their names in Irish. Ask Oilga, and I'm going to do it because that's how I interact with everybody who I can. And so it wasn't, there was nothing malicious in it. Nobody I spoke to at least admitted to it. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. I'm sure there it does. And that did come up in, in the research as well, that people did think that there was people who maybe were just trying to, to do, use Irish to be malicious. And you know what, that's fine because you're allowed to be malicious when you're interacting with the criminal justice system. <laughs> you're allowed to be a dick. I mean, yeah, it might not go in your favour, mm. but like that's where it's supposed to be fair to everybody, whether or not you're a dick. So <laughs> that's the principle, I believe. Yeah, I mean, right? you know, there, there's there are different, you can express, a person can express their dickishness in different ways and they, they, and yeah. they often do. And there are many stories about that. News coverage of people who insist on, who insist on Irish. Insist! No, you didn't. News coverage of people who insist on demand yeah, who, who, requ- who requests the, the a la carte Irish menu at court. Yes, yes, we're only having that. No, no, we'll only have it in Irish, please. Thank you very much. Those people demanding. Continue with your question, please. <laughs> Phrase it's, it. Um, but the, the the news coverage of such um, of of such cases of such defendants has been interesting. Some of it has been. Um, yeah. Some of it has been. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, Shite? Is that it? Is that <laughs> bracing. Some of it has been bracing. Yeah. Well, listen, swings and roundabouts, It's it, there's never been a shortage of footnotes, which was great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's great. You find a source, no bother. <laughs> it did lead to some very, very, very painful Google searches because I would have to like search, you know, defendant demanding Irish in court. And then I'd have to like. Then, then it would really skew my Google algorithm. You know, Irish is a dead language, Google, mm. you know. So, um, yeah, it does. Listen, the media can say what it likes about it and, and that's fine. But I, and I do think it's it's informed by people's views are informed by the media and vice versa. But I don't think it, it exists. I don't think it's entirely the fault of of the media. I think there is this longstanding perception of Irish and this view of Irish speakers as malicious and as uh, troublesome. And I think it's very, it's very tempting to sort of pin it on one thing. Um, And if I was to pin it on one thing, it's probably post-colonialism. But like, (laughs) that's a very large thing. There's a lot of things that, that cause that. So there's, there's a million reasons why people perceive Irish in this way and Irish speakers in this way. Um, And, you know, I've ranted about this a million times on, on this podcast. I'm not 
not going to, I'll spare you. <laughs> um, but I think, I think it's important that we recognize that as a society, we have a big role in, okay, I talked to individuals about their individual experiences with the guards and with the courts. Um, but actually society has a role yeah. in that. So society, and, and that's where I got really into access to justice. And a lot of access to justice research is around disability rights. Um, and obviously, as I said, Sinead Burke was, was you know, seminal in, in kind of interesting me in that, in that sort of thing about identity. And obviously yourself as well, you know, um, and how we can change our perception. So I got into this field of, of disability rights and there's, we talk about access to justice, right? I'm sure that's a term people have heard before. But it's one of those things, particularly if you're anyway legal adjacent, everybody loves talking about access to justice. Nobody likes to actually define access mm-hmm. to justice, which to me was interesting in itself because I was like, okay, what do we mean though? And I think what a lot of people think we mean by access to justice is, could I get in the doors of the court? Do you know, was there, if I'm a wheelchair user, was there a ramp? And that's obviously important. But we need to look at it from a wider perspective. So... I, very briefly, uh, uh, the way I like to explain it is like it's like a pyramid with three okay. layers. So at the very top of the pyramid, you have what's called uh, procedural uh, access. Um, and procedural access is like that. Could I get in the courtroom door? Yeah. Was I allowed in? When we talk about language, was there an interpreter present? You know, was there one available? Was one brought in? OK, the law says I'm, I'm supposed to have an interpreter, but was there actually one brought in? Yes or no. If there wasn't, then that's a denial of procedural access. And that's obviously very important when we get to the institutions of justice, like the Garda station, like the, the court. Then we have on a, the next layer down, so the second layer, which is a foundation to the first layer. We can't have the first layer without the second layer. We have uh, substantive access and substantive access can be boiled down to like the phrase from disability activism, nothing about us without us. So if you're making laws and policies for marginalised people, for disabled people, did you include those people in your decision making? Were they included? Were they were their opinions sought? Um, and very often you'll see that that might not be the case or they, maybe their opinions were sought at the get go. So we asked disabled people at the start, what do you need? And then by the time it was made into law, it was kind of watered mm. down, which happens a lot. Um, the original research um, on this is about um, access to justice in these three terms is from um, research on uh, women in the Middle East. And it looked at one example whereby there was a change to the law on divorce in Egypt so that there was a uh, women could apply for no fault yep. divorces, which is grand. You know, it was great. The law changed. Women could apply. However, nobody looked at the societal things around to see what happens when a woman actually applies for no fault divorce. Well, she's shunned by yeah. her community. So it's no use changing the law when you haven't actually looked at people. And that brings me on to the very bottom most level, which is symbolic access. And this is what I think, I believe that this is the, the most important one. And symbolic access is like, how are, how are these marginalised people perceived in society? So if society, like you said, the media and people, you know, perceive Irish and Irish speakers as troublesome, as schlieving, as, as you know, bad goyal, as troublemakers and, and deviant and maybe part of part of sympathetic towards paramilitary organisations or whatever it is, um, or, you know, the teacher who rammed Peg down your yeah. throat. Um, 
uh, one day we'll let that woman rest, but not today. Mm-hmm. Today is not the day. Um, so if that's how people are perceived, that feeds into a bigger narrative in society. And that actually filters down to by the time, you know, Sean Amorakou finds himself in a, a, a courthouse in Dublin, accused of whatever, that damage has already been done, actually, because the entirety of society has said this person is a bad person. And that filtered through to when he had an interaction with Angarda Siakana. Why wouldn't they believe that the person who's on O'Connell Street speaking Irish and refusing to give their name in English with an inverted commas uh, isn't anything but a shleaving because we expect to find Irish speakers in the Gaeltacht and this isn't the Gaeltacht. Mm. Why wouldn't the, you know, the the courts assume that you're asking for an interpreter? I know you speak English because everybody speaks English. You're wasting time. You're wasting time to, you know, frustrate proceedings and you're wasting time to wait to get a more sympathetic judge. And I'm not going to allow the interpreter or I'm not going to push back the date or, you know, to find a judge with Irish. And already you have damaged their ability to procure a fair trial and kind of I don't care what people's opinions are about whether or not that's right because they oh they've committed a crime well we tell ourselves that we have a fair justice system and we have to ensure that it's fair for people even the people you don't like um, so whether or not people like Irish speakers they have a right the same as anybody else irrespective of the constitution so it's important that we pull back when we're looking at individuals in court cases and individual court cases that are reported in the media and how that's being reported and how it's being talked about. Because we have the ability in ourselves to change that narrative. Um, and I, I think, if listen, if this podcast has done anything over the last four years, I hope that it's done a bit of that, mm-hmm. that we have allowed for a space for people to explore different views of Irish or like challenged views of old views of Irish. And obviously I'm probably preaching to the choir here, mm. but I think it's been good to sort of see different speakers of Irish and people who speak Irish for different reasons. People like you or I or Pather who all have different journeys with Irish or, you know, any of the people that we've interviewed about their journeys with Irish and how they're different and actually more nuanced than we might think. And it can be very tempting to just be like, that person fits in that mm. box. And therefore, I'm going to treat them that way. Um, it's a lot harder to be nuanced, but it's much better for for justice and for society to be Definitely. nuanced. Uh, Definitely. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. So I think sometimes there is a perception, and often the, these cases you're referring to, you're referring specifically to, with, with crime, it's in, in, where um, it's, it's, it's an, an, an individual versus the state rather than individual versus an individual, in which case it comes up differently. Yeah. And when maybe a person is, taking, um, is going to court against a school or a hospital, um, there can be public sympathy for an institution. The idea that if a school um, has to fork out a certain amount of damages to a private citizen, yeah. that the school doesn't have that money anymore. The school wasn't going to spend that money on fur coats and Ferraris. It was, well, you know, they're, they're badly yeah. enough funded as it is. And now some Schlieveen is laughing all the way to the bank. They're, you know, and and yeah. it's, a, you see this sometimes where while there is sympathy for creators, suddenly if somebody wants a, a highly bespoke service or something respective of, of their disability or their linguistic needs that, you know, the, the that temperature can change very quickly. Um, you see it with something very like quickly. a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people, the way people talk about wheelchairs, um, ramps being added to uh, schools uh, or something like that. And suddenly people are like, what, for, for one student? I mean, yeah. Can't they can't they study outside in the yard? You know, and then you what think, the fuck oh, is wrong if with that's you? That's going to cost eight. Oh, if they 
they're, they say it's going to cost 80 grand. I bet if you ask, they just take the 40 and leave. And you hear that. And then, yeah. and, and people say, and, and you see, and then these, these mythologies start spreading. So I heard what happened in another school, you yeah. know, and particularly if, if someone has, has a need, that means that requires them to change schools or hospitals frequently. They go, oh, mm-hmm. I heard about them in the other place. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that's, it's extremely, as I said, it's really tempting to be like, to take the easy option and take the very simplistic, oh, that person's mm-hmm. just a bad person, right? And they're looking for, they're looking for handouts or whatever it is, or they're looking for, if it's, you know, minority language users, oh, they're just looking to be awkward because they know they've done wrong, right? Because they've committed a crime and they're just trying to make it out that they're being discriminated mm-hmm. against now. Um, but as I said, whether or not this person is a dick is irrelevant, yeah. you know, they're still... I I have the the lofty position of believing that people deserve human rights, even dickheads, you know. So uh, I think we, whether or not that person is a good person in your eyes shouldn't fucking matter or whether they're deserving of it, you know, whether they have to reach this threshold of deserving is irrelevant. Whether they've taken 40 cases previously suing the state for a lack of services in their language is irrelevant the, the the issue you should be looking at there is that they've had to take mm-hmm. 40 cases, <laughs> you know, that's the issue. But that's a much more nuanced and that's a much more difficult. That's booking the status quo, right? And that's hard to do. And it's hard to see it that way. And look, I, I'm my research is in criminal justice and looking at accused persons who are like incredibly mm-hmm. unpopular. You know, people love to shit on criminals. And I'm like, mm, but let's look at the wider reasons why crime happens and why people commit crimes, you know. Um, sure, sometimes people are assholes, but very often it's a societal problem and how society has the capacity to prevent this and to make it so that this doesn't happen. But it's it's a lot easier to just, and cheaper, shall we say, to violate human rights. So you and, and then to blame it on the person who's seeking those rights. So it's not about necessity, I don't think, to bring it back to language rights. I don't think it matters. This 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 thing of necessity, look, I've said it a million times and I'll say it again. Fluency is fake. So this idea that somebody needs to be this arbitrary level of fluent in order to forego language yeah. rights, that shouldn't come into your mind. If a person's asking for an interpreter or a service in that language, you don't get to ask why. If that is already mandated in law, it's not your business why they're asking for it. Your business is providing it now. And then that goes for not just criminal justice systems. That goes for any service where there is a right to an interpreter or to that form in your language. It doesn't matter why they're asking for it. It doesn't matter if they're going to take that form and put it in the bin. You need to provide that form. It's not your business Mm -hmm. to be angry about it, you know. And yeah, I'm sure people who work in in, you know, public service must be annoyed when that happens. But that's because the services haven't been provided for them. And I think, um, you know, the criminal justice system is an example of that. It's a system that is literally, in Ireland at least, it's collapsing under the weight of what its needs and the changes that are necessary. But it's just, it has to keep going. It's not something you can put on hiatus mm-hmm. and fixed, you know. The criminal justice system is always working. So, um, yeah, it's it's hard to change it. It's very difficult, but... That doesn't mean that it shouldn't be changed. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive for perfection, particularly when it comes to, as I said, the criminal justice system on Gerda Giacona and the judiciary. Like you have the right to use force, detain and imprison yeah. people. So I'm sorry, but I'm going to expect 100% from those people every single time. And I don't think that's too much to ask, actually. Um, and that's a hill I will die on. I don't think it's too much to ask for perfection from people in those. And obviously, as I said earlier, yeah. these are people, right? People have biases and I don't think there's anything wrong with acknowledging your bias. I think we would be all a lot better if we did acknowledge yeah. our biases. Um, 
and grow from it. It's okay to have a bias, you know, it's fine. It's inevitable. Just acknowledge it. You can say, and yeah, yeah I mean, things exactly. that you, you just, you, you check yourself with new information and, you know, you're open to, um, these little things. Yeah. And I think it's, it's funny that way because I was, I, my own methodology for my research is very much about embracing your bias, which was really hard. But like, I think a lot of research and a lot of law as well, it likes to be very obje- objective. And, oh, no, it's objective. And I'm like, is it though? If there was a human involved, it's not fucking objective. <laughs> like, let's investigate that objectivity. And I don't pretend that my research is objective. I mean, anyone who's heard me on my on this podcast will know that that's not objective research. And you know mm. what? That's fine. It's fine that it's not objective. I, I think that that's okay. Um, but I think that if we all were a little bit more, particularly people in positions of authority, if we were a little bit more understanding of why we think that this person is a creator or a sleeving, hang on. Why do I think that this person is a bad person because they're using a different language in front of me? Maybe I should interrogate that for two seconds before I put handcuffs on them, do you know? Um, but alas, that has yet to happen on a grand Great scale. Stuff. So, um, Guardian, after you, hopefully, you know, after this fever, what, what happens next? Is it uh, a friend of mine once talked about, you know, um, the process of going from from being a, uh, a an associate lawyer to becoming a partner. I think it's similar to being going from, mm-hmm. from postgraduate to postdoctorate. And he said he compared it to winning a pie eating contest and the prize is more pie. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> oh, that's really sad. Yeah. Basically, yeah, it's a bigger, different pie. Um, it's winning a pie eating contest that you ha- and you had to make the pie yourself and you had no ingredients and no money to make the pie. <laughs> And then you had to eat it all. And now I have also entered a pie contest and I have to make the pie myself, but at least the European hey, for, for European the pie. pie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, I'm hoping to, well, I, I, I will be starting a, a, hopefully soon, a postdoctoral research um, in the University of Birmingham uh, under Dr. Professor, sorry, Professor Karen McAuliffe. I'm very excited about that. Um, but yeah, I'm going to continue on this road, it's still going to be language rights based. I'm not done with with language rights. I'm not finished. Mm. Um, uh, I'm not sick of it yet. Uh, so yeah, I I continue doing this. I hopefully at some point before 2021 mm. or 2021, right? Before I get married in 2022, which is when we are hoping to get married, I will be Dr. McAvoy. So I will insist on being called that at all events and functions. Um, get ready for all the shit jokes about people having heart attacks and you're being called over. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait for them to call. Is there a doctor on board? And I'll be like, oh, you mm. didn't specify. You need a medical doctor. Well, no. <laughs> There's a clip from... Um, from What's that fucking show? Hmm. Uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, where there's a guy who's a dentist being interrogated by the police and he's using the title doctor and Captain Holt, who's the captain, is is explaining the origin of the term doctor being connected to to PhDs. And I will be sharing that on all social media platforms. I think I'm ready for the rest of my life to be told that you're not a real doctor because if, if, if my other academic female friends are anything to go by that happens all the time but I don't care my name is um, does not if you're not familiar with Irish it doesn't necessarily tell you gender so I get Mr. McAvoy a lot so maybe Dr. McAvoy will will weed that out I don't love 
I have a very feminine photograph of myself on my Gmail because I just mm. fucking hate. I hate getting the Mr. McAvoy's book. Definitely. Get that's and I think that that old, so you're always a doctor. I don't know how the joke works in French. I think they, because um, it's about doctors and medicine. And. Oh, yeah, they don't have so the same thing. It's one of a number of. Oh, yeah. I don't think doctor, I don't think PhDs call themselves doctors in Finland. I will of be course. demanding to be called doctor. You sure you, you, I, you insist on your Irish yes. cultural rights? <laughs> yes, I demand it. Yeah, um, yeah. I've asked my my partner, my fiance, if he's comfortable with being um, Doctor and Mister McAvoy. Yeah. <laughs> Good <laughs> so, stuff. A proper order. Um, yeah. I think we're going to have to leave it yeah. there for now. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, um, it was been. It's been as I said. I, I kind of had this romantic idea of like finishing up my PhD and being able to share with people. I know I've probably rambled a little bit, so it might be difficult for people to grasp. But I do think there is a value in. Because my research is about people who are uh, fundamentally minority people and marginalised people who don't always have access to academia. So I just think there's such an important and in like disseminating research findings yeah. beyond academia. It's important to do it in the academic, but there's no point that it just stays there. Um, sorry. Uh, particularly in COVID times, you see how important access to mm-hmm. good research is. Not necessarily <laughs> saying mine is good, but like impo- it's important that that you put it out there. So as I said, I always had this romantic idea that I would be able to mm. share with our listeners the thing that I've been most passionate about for the last five years. So, um, yeah, it might seem boring to people, but I hope there's some value in some of it. And that's what I've been doing. I think, I think the value of it is very clear. It's, been, it's phenomenal work. Uh, we're all extremely proud of you. And uh, it's going to, it's going to, I know I, I, we've, uh, we'll have our fingers crossed for you for the, the coming days. Absolutely. The big day. So, yeah. and, as obviously said, we are we will be wrapping up motherfucker soon. So we're not we're not inviting anyone to become a Patreon anymore. Um, we are thanking Brian and Kirsten for their work on this episode, and you can you can t- check out yeah. more of what they do in the show notes. Um, probably not going to have another mailbag episode before we wrap up. But I mean, if you want to contact us, you know, you, you can. Yeah. Fanny Hammond has any comments about my research? I'd actually, I actually would be interested. Unless yeah. you're just going to tell me it's bad, like that's terrible. Send, like, send us, send us a that, voice like. note on the WhatsApp, which we might, we might stick it in the next episode, yeah. and we'd love to hear that. Yeah, and and you know where to find us on the old uh, Twitter. Do. Like, you know. <laughs> so until the next time, yeah. slant from me, and slant from me. What are we going to do when we don't get to do that anymore? I have no idea. It's going to be a shocking time. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. There's such a horn for a dictionary.